Good morning, Eastside family. Let's take our, our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5 as we worship with our offering. Matthew 5. So, Jody, I was told I should embarrass you. It's okay if I do. By someone sitting very close to you, you could decide if that's your mom or your husband. Welcome back. We're glad to have you here. And if we have a shepherd, any of our shepherds here during our prayer time, I think it would be most appropriate for us to gather around Jody and Mark and Jody's mom and pray over them. I also want to say welcome to Vicki Hancock's mom and dad who are here, Eileen and Bill or Wayne. I'm not sure. Sometimes I call you Bill. Sometimes I call you Wayne. I think it can be either one. We're so glad to have you guys back here. Bill used to be a preacher, actually. So... And then some of you guys may be wondering where my wife Karen is. She's gone to Baton Rouge for a week to um, watch grandchildren. She gets in tomorrow night at 11.30 and she hops on the plane Wednesday to go be with her mom for two weeks. Our marriage is great, but she's usually the one that shaves me. And so what am I to do? <laughs> no, she can't stand beards. So, oh, she's going to be gone three weeks. <laughs> Oh, Jesus was seated when he taught these beautiful words. And so I think I'll follow his model. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And our focus of attention we're looking at today is verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And so, so there's a whole lot to say about this. There's many ways that we could interpret this beatitude, because there's many situations in which we find ourselves mourning. Certainly one can mourn over the painful circumstance such as the loss of a loved one and that is extremely true to the definition of the word that is used here. This definition of this word, it is the, the, the strongest Greek word that could be used for mourning, meaning to, to, to wail, to lament over the loss of a loved one. That's what this, ver this, this word is trying to, to convey. And that's very timely for us. That resonates with where our church family is right now. One can also mourn and grieve over others. One can mourn and grieve over the, the condition of our world. And that certainly is appropriate from this verse as well. But as a series in the, in the Beatitudes, and we're looking at each one of these as, is, is a step of faith that we're taking towards a, a dream and a vision that our, our, the leadership of our church has towards a, a ministry of recovery called Celebrate Recovery, a ministry of helping to bring hope and healing to, to the broken in our community and to the broken and sinful as well in our church world. Because that's, that's the focus of this series and also because that's really the 
the, the context in which this passage is, is placed, that's how we're going to look at this as, as, a, as, as a mourning for our hurts and sufferings that we as individuals face. That's the context and flow of this verse. So Don McGinty um, gave me three books. He knew I was teaching on the Beatitudes and I already have like six or seven that I'm reading and he gave me three more and, and I love the books that he gave me and, and one of them is written by a woman. He didn't tell me anything about her. It's written by a woman named Monty McGinty Foster and I thought, well, that's odd and I looked at the beginning of it and it said she has a son who's from the, um, what's, that, what's that place uh, where Texas A&M is? A son from where Texas A&M, I just, being an LSU fan, I don't think much of that but, um, <laughs> and I figured out that's Don's mom who wrote this book. And Don, I just want you to know, I have about eight books that I have read and I'm reading and preparing for this series. And, and I would regard the author as to be very skilled and scholarly, such as um, Sinclair Ferguson or Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, Dallas Willard or John Stott. Your mom's book is, is right up there with them as far as skill and content is concerned. So I'm going to share with you some of the some of the quotes from her book as well. So if you like this sermon, give Don's mother credit for it. She writes of the, the, the context and the flow of thought of these Beatitudes. Listen to what she writes. She, she paints word pictures beautifully. She says, these Beatitudes are strung together like graduated pearls. Each one has its place, growing out of the one that came before it. It also leads into the one that follows. There is nothing careless or haphazard in their arrangement. So I love this word picture. She says the Beatitudes, they're like these beautiful pearls. One flows from this one and one leads into the other. And so her point is you can't just take one of these out and interpret it by itself. They have to be seen as a whole, one leading into the other and the other leading into the next. And so as I try to wrap my brain around what does it mean blessed are those who mourn, I have to connect it with that which preceded it, which we looked at last week. Blessed are those, blessed are the, the poor in spirit. When it comes to the self-realizations we talked about last week of being poor in spirit, helpless and hopeless, if we get that, then it's naturally going to lead us to the point of, of grief and, and, and mourning. It's one thing to, to be spiritually poor and to acknowledge it. It's another thing to, to grieve that and to mourn it. Confession is one thing, but contrition, that's another thing. And so if I were to take these two pearls and to place them side by side, borrowing your mother's uh, metaphor, I would say this, blessed are those who feel their poverty and brokenness and who so cry out to heaven. And so there's a, there's a paradox here. When we read blessed, that means like happy, joyful, whole, and content. Blessed are those who mourn. It almost sounds as though we're reading happier those who aren't happy. Or we would be reading you're truly blessed when you're, when you're wailing with tears. And it feels as though we've, we've come upon a contradiction. On the one hand, the Bible tells us to rejoice in the Lord always. And then on the other hand, we're told, there, well, there's a time to mourn. And judged by human standards, we'd say, yeah, indeed, there's a contradiction because our mourning would, our, our, our culture would say anything that mourns, anytime there's grief or sorrow or mourning, well, well, 
something's wrong, something's bad. But Jesus' teaching is not rooted in worldly standards. And so in his teaching, we see that mourning and blessings are not mutually exclusive terms, but rather they're mutual conditions. One sets the stage for the other. One author of, of this beatitude quotes an Arab proverb that goes like this, all sunshine makes a desert. Meaning there's certain things which only rains can produce. And there's certain blessings that can only come from the deepest of sorrows. The way to the joy and blessings of forgiveness is through the, the desperate sorrow of a broken heart. And so as we try to say, well, what does it mean to mourn? What does it mean? Well, I believe one of the things we need to clarify is what does it not mean? Because some of us are going, yeah, I identify with that. But mourning here is not moping. Mourning here is not moaning. Of the one who mourns, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a tremendous author, he writes these words, the one who mourns is not morose. He is not miserable. He's not sullen. This is not to be equated with a heavy and depressive spirit. It's not a a drowning in self-pity and, 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 and shame. Because there are some people, it's, it's as though, you ever notice they enjoy sorrow and they enjoy the, the attention that it brings and they're never so well satisfied as when they're miserable. It's like they wouldn't be happy if they were happy. And they read this beatitude and they go, wow, that's me. No, it's not. That's not what this is. This beatitude is, is, is not a sorrow that causes me to turn inward or turn away from God. This is a sorrow that's intended to turn us to God. And perhaps one of the best ways to define this beatitude would be in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 where he speaks of the same word. He says, godly sorrow brings repentance. Listen to this, this is beautiful. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and it leaves no regret. How would you like to have no regrets? Never more beating yourself up. This is a mourning that awakens one to God with a sincere desire to change. Or the word, the fancy word that's used here is, is repent. The one who weeps for their sin with godly sorrow is the one who will repent if there is sin. If there is no repentance that follows out of that sorrow and that mourning, then this is worldly sorrow. And the writer in 2 Corinthians goes on to say, worldly sorrow brings death. And worldly sorrow brings death because it drowns in grief. It beats itself up. It drowns in self-pity and shame. And some of us get that. And the group of men that I meet with each week we're journeying together on this road of recovery and healing. If, if I could say there's one chapter in the Bible, we read a lot together. And if there's one chapter that is, we go to more often than any other, it's, it's King David's confessional psalm in Psalm 51. And in writing on brokenness, he, he, he speaks of mourning. In verses 16 and 17, he says, You do not delight in, in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in, in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God, what he means by that, what you're after, God, what you're looking for. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God doesn't want religious actions from us to make up for whatever has happened in our lives. He wants our hearts 
broken and contrite before him. I think that's important because sometimes we find some negative circumstance or something that we've done that's a mistake in our lives and we think, well, I just need to, man, I need to go to church more often. Or I just need to get involved in a, in a ministry like Mercy's Gate. Or, or maybe I need to let Tom camp. I need to serve communion. And we're trying to come up with things we can give to God. When I was 16, I, I, I got arrested. And I got in a, in a heap of trouble. And so I got baptized. <laughs> I got baptized to appease my mom and dad and to appease God and to make up for everything I'd done. I wasn't sorry for what I had done. I wasn't contrite. I had no plans of changing my life. But I had this idea that when you've done something wrong, you just need to do something right for God and everything's cool. It was a religious act. Now, being baptized, serving at Mercy's Gate, um, coming to church more often... These sacrifices we bring, they're right and they're appropriate, but only as they are driven out of the sincerity of a, of a heart that mourns, a broken and contrite heart. God wants our hearts, not just our actions, to appease him or to counterbalance what we've done that's wrong, as, as, though, as though that could be done. The morning of this beatitude, I believe, is a morning that flows out of, it springs from a, a painful sense of brokenness and sin. And I think that's a problem because I think to a large degree that among us is missing. There is in our contemporary world, and I'm sorry to say even our church world, there's missing a painful sense of hurt and brokenness and sin and therefore in turn there's missing a, a mourning for that the culture of our world and even our church world we don't want anyone to, to mourn we don't want anyone coming to church and feeling bad any feelings of guilt or, or wrong in our, in our welcoming world of tolerance and unity and love there is this accompanying philosophy of, of each to his own right and wrong is subjective So our goal for everyone that comes to the doors, we want everybody to feel good. We don't want anybody to feel judged. I remember reading in the paper one time, there, I have the churches and I'm looking to see what their advertisements are. And one of the church says, if you come to our church, you'll always feel joy and you'll always leave with joy. And I wonder if that is true, then is the preaching of God's word in its fullness is that truly happening? Are people being led into the holy presence of God? Look in Scripture at stories of individuals who all of a sudden figured out, I am before the almighty, holy, and righteous God. And their reaction was always a recognition of His holiness and their a fearful recognition of their own unholiness. And so as we look at this, this, this um, beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, there's, a, there's an aversion we have to it because there's a mistaken idea of a Christian. You always have to be happy and, and clappy. And if anybody here is grieving or mourning, well, something's wrong. You lack faith. You're not strong as a Christian. You look in Scripture, and we are taught, and Scripture models for us, there's a, there's a time for God's people to mourn 
Actually, a whole book, Lamentations, is, is devoted to that. And you read the Psalms and you think Psalms. I love Psalms because it's all this upbeat worship and praise. Read it again and count how many lament Psalms are there. And so in our goal to make everybody feel better, in our goal to attract people and, and give this incredible feeling of joy, it's actually counterproductive because in, in a sense it's denying others the joy and beauty of knowing, the joy and blessing of his grace and his forgiveness. Don, your mother quotes, writes these words, and I quote, happiness and salvation, it grows out of a seedbed of grief over a life of sin, a seedbed over one's helplessness to save himself. The author, John Stott, in his chapter on this Beatitudes writes, on this Beatitude writes, there are such things as Christian tears and too few of us ever weep them. And so I'm afraid that perhaps our church culture is a lot like the church culture in Corinth to which Paul was writing in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you place what he wrote in context, there was a man who was involved in, in sexual immorality. And Paul writes of this. He says, you know, you got somebody in your church and they're very involved in something that's sexually immoral. And he says, and you're proud of it. And, and you're, you're boasting about it. Look at us. Look at how loving we are. Look at how, how progressive we are. Look at how tolerant we are. Look at our grace. And that is not grace. To condone and tolerate what God does not tolerate, does not tolerate, is not graceful and loving, but is enabling one in self-destructive and soul-destructive behavior. And so Paul says to these Christians in this church, shouldn't you rather, and he uses the same word that Jesus uses in this beatitude, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? Or another translation says, shouldn't you rather be filled with grief? There was no sense of sin. And so there was the absence of mourning. And Paul's point here isn't, you need to hammer that guy into a hole of shame. No, his point was to bless that guy and to awaken him to God that he could experience the blessings that Jesus speaks of in this beatitude. You can look deeper into to James chapter 4, the recipients of his letter. He basically says the same thing. He, he's very direct with them. He says, you're adulterous people who are making friends with the world in participative sinful ways. And they were basically, if you read the context, following Satan unknowingly perhaps, but all the same doing that. And he says, Horrible things are happening among you. And he says you're filled with laughter and joy and pride. And James writes, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Why? He says, humble yourself in this way before the Lord. And then he will lift you up. There's the blessing. And it's in that context that James writes in that, those same verses, come near to God and he will come near indeed to you. And so it is through this self-realization of being broken and poor in spirit, leading one to humbly mourning over their sin, that they come near to God and in turn God promises, and I will come near as well to you. 
That's what this beatitude is telling us when it says, blessed are those who mourn. The words, for they will be comforted, could be translated, for God will come near to you. Let me explain. Again, Don, I'll, I'll refer to your mother's book. She speaks of this promise of those being comforted. And look at this word picture she uses. She says, the present day usage of the word comfort has somewhat been, has somewhat corrupted the present day usage of, I want to be honest to your mom's quote here, sorry. The present day usage of the word comfort has somewhat corrupted the original meaning of the word. The idea of comfort, which is the corrupted idea, it suggests an armchair in front of a fireplace or curling up with a book and a box of chocolates and lounging lazily on the back of a stream watching a fishing line. Those may be aspects of comfort that come to mind, but that's not the picture that this beatitude is trying to paint. There's a different picture here. The word picture here is, is from the original language. It's, it's a beautiful word. It's called parakaleo, from which we get the word paraclete. And some of you know that from, from some, some translations in John 14. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Spirit and his closeness. He is called the paraclete. And it's a combination of two words, para and kaleo. Kaleo means to call. And para means near, to one side. And so it's in our mourning and our brokenness that our tears call God to come to our side and he hears those cries and he comes to us. Oh church, whatever you do, don't suppress your tears and your cries. They magnetically draw God to you. And Laura, this is a, this is a quote from Psalm 34 that you put on Facebook. He is near. Don't you love it? Listen to this. He is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Isaiah prophesies of the coming Messiah. He writes of Jesus' mission and ministry. He says, he has sent me. This is, this is why I've come. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort those who mourn. That's what Jesus is telling us in this beatitude. So now, a good sermon is supposed to say, well, okay, well, what do we do? What's the practical application? You guys work on that in your life groups. I've really struggled with that. Um, how do you apply this personally? And my problem is like, I'm saying, Lord, okay, I get what you're saying, but what's the to do here? It's kind of like last week, remember, we're looking at, at poor in spirit. Am I supposed to say, everybody go out and try to be poor in spirit? <laughs> no, that's not the that's not the message of that beatitude. It's like come to a realization that you are. And, and so what am I to do with this passage on mourning? The, everybody, the, the Bible says we're supposed to mourn. So I'm going to count to three and, and at the count of three, everybody mourn. One, two. Or, all right, I want you this week. Cry. This just didn't feel right. That's contrived. It can't be contrived or or staged. It must come naturally. So what can we do? I don't know if it's fair to say, how can you mourn? Give you four steps to crying. I don't mean it like that. What can we do? Let me share with you four things that I have for you. Number one, dwell in his presence. 
Spend quality time daily in prayer in the presence of God. I already said that earlier, but anytime you see someone come into the close presence of the holy God, they all of a sudden recognize their sinfulness and their unholiness. And therefore, if I never or seldom recognize my brokenness and my sinfulness, it's likely the result of that I never or seldom am in the presence of God. Dwell in his presence. Secondly, dwell in the word of God. And you know this from scripture. God's word is like a sword. It cuts deep and it gets into places that you can't get into and it reveals things about yourself that you perhaps weren't even aware of. We know in scripture that God's word is like a mirror helping us to see ourselves as we truly are. And so I'll say it again, but in this context, if, if you are never or seldom, if you never or seldom feel the pain and brokenness of sin, that it's likely that you're seldom or perhaps never spending time before God in his word. That's the work of his word. And so you dwell in his presence, you dwell in his word, and all of a sudden the spirit does something. This is the third thing you don't do, but God does. But there's a part of that we play. Hear and receive the conviction. That's the word I want you to notice of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' discourse in John 14, 15, and 16, where we read the Holy Spirit is a comforter, we also read that he is a convictor. He will convict, meaning he will make you aware of and help you feel the pain of your sin and your brokenness. And while it states there that he will convict the world, which means the unbelieving world, and while we as Christians are forgiven and we have been freed from the guilt of our sin, he still plays a role of convicting us in the sense of making us aware of the sin in our lives. So you can be sure of this as you spend time in the presence of God and you spend time before God and his word. The Holy Spirit is not just going to bring you face to face with God, but he's going to bring you face to face with yourself, helping you become aware of things that he wants to deal with in your life. And so when those three things are in place, there's a final thing that, that came to mind. As you dwell in the presence of God, as you dwell in the word of God, as the Holy Spirit works to convict you in your life, confess your sin and brokenness. Last week, I, I really loved this thought. It's not original to me, but someone else mentioned it that I was reading. Of It says in Scripture, you know, we, we confess our sins to God and we're forgiven, but Scripture says you want to be healed. James 5, you must confess your sins to one another. To openly, confession means to openly and verbally admit your sin and brokenness to God and to others. What a beautiful story in Psalm 32 painful but beautiful is King David man after God's own heart had committed adultery with another man's wife and he got her pregnant tough story he tried to cover it up with deceit and secrecy and that didn't work and so he had the wife's husband killed and if you kind of follow the chronological timeline, it was about for nine months that he held it in. And he, and he kept it a secret. And of this period of suppressing his sin and his brokenness, listen to his words. Psalm 32, 3. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. You get that? You ever carried something? It's your secret. And it's so heavy of a burden. 
That's David. But then he writes, then I acknowledged my sin to you and I didn't cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And that psalm closes, rejoice in the Lord and be glad. It was out of his groaning and pain of wasting away in the secrecy of his hidden sin that he couldn't bear it any longer. He confessed it and he experienced the blessing that comes to those who mourn. So when I was in high school as a senior with, with three months to graduate, I did something very, very bad in school. It was really bad. It, it was so bad that they brought in police and uh, a detective with the TBI, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigations. And they knew what had happened, but they didn't know who did it. But they were figuring it was me because at this school I had a really, at this time, by the time I was a senior, I had a really bad reputation. And so they brought me in to the office with the policemen or the detectives, administrators, day after day for weeks, hounding me and hounding me. They just knew I had done this, but I just kept holding it a secret. I kept holding in this lie, uh-uh, didn't do it, uh-uh, didn't do it. It's not fair that you always blame me. And I came to a point where I just got tired of it. It became weary to me. And I remember, I remember the chair I was in. I, was, I remember the detective with the TBI sitting there. I remember, I forgot his name. I remember Jackie Ray Davis, my principal, another administrator. And they were just question, question. I, I lifted my hands up and I said, I did it. And the craziest thing happened that surprised me. I just started crying. Like, and it was a really embarrassing. <laughs> I didn't want to cry. It was just like naturally coming out. I couldn't help it. But here's what was even more surprising was how those tears felt. So I knew by confessing what I had done, I was going to face some really tough consequences. But that feeling wasn't as great as this feeling of um, freedom. I guess that's the word. I felt so incredibly um, relieved. My tears felt good. <laughs> They were refreshing. The apostle Peter in, in Acts 3, he's pouring out the story of Jesus to a group of people. And he says, oh, repent. And that's a repentance that there's a mourning and a confession that leads to repentance. And he says, repent and turn to the Lord so that times of refreshing. And when I close my eyes and I hear that word times of refreshing, I feel a shower washing me. And so he says, so that your sins may be wiped out. It's the second of life's healing choices. Choosing to mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. 
they will be comforted. Let's pray. So, oh, oh, Father, I ask that you would do what I can't do. I can't point to each one and say, this is what it means for you, this is what it means for you, but you do that, and you do that masterfully. So I ask now, Spirit, that you would take these words from Scripture and penetrate and cut and show us how they apply to us in whatever way. And we are so thankful that as we come before you, as we cry out to you, that you come near you come near to the brokenhearted and you bring comfort. So we're going to, I'm going to ask that you would stand now. We're going to continue in a spirit of prayer. You can stand. I'm going to worship with this song and I want to ask that our shepherds would be made available to, uh, our shepherds are available for you to go to and to pray with them. Um, but there aren't enough shepherds compared to the number of people we have. And so if there's something heavy on your heart and you need somebody to pray with you, I want to encourage you to, to reach out to someone. If you know someone that's here with a heavy heart today, you go to them. And um, let's gather around Jody and Mark and we'll just pray for them. Let's go before God in prayer. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs every Sunday at 1040 a.m. as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.